0: This morning we're going to be returning to the book of James, beginning in chapter 4, verse 11. If you want to be turning there or looking on the screen. But if you're here and you don't have a copy of God's Word of your own that you can read, would encourage you to take the pewback Bible there, where you'll find this text on the New Testament, which is the second half on 179. I would encourage you to take that Bible home with you as our gift to you if you'll commit to read it. In the previous section, which we looked at last week, James called the church to pursue the presence of God from a posture of humble repentance. And our passage this morning gives three specific areas to start with our words, our plans, and our money. You see, each of these are our words, our plans, our money, they reveal who we're worshiping, and often, It's not God. It's us. But friends, we are not God. And when we put ourselves in God's place, we incur His judgment and we miss His blessing. So then it's my prayer that God will use this text to convict each one of us and then drive us to the cross where by faith we bow before the God-man Jesus Christ and confess, You are God. We are not. Let's ask the Lord's help this morning. Father, would You please do what we've just sung. Would You speak to us through Your Word, by Your Spirit, that we might both see our sin and savor our Savior. Would You cause us afresh this morning to be confronted with the glorious reality that we are not God, but You are. Get glory for yourself through this sermon in Jesus' name. Amen. In verse verses 11-12 through 12 of chapter 4, we see that you're not God, so don't talk like it. You're not God, so don't talk like it. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? You see, it's impossible to humble ourselves before the Lord while at the same time speaking evil against one another. Because if we speak evil against one another, we're speaking evil against the law. What's so wrong with that? We live in a country where we have the right to disagree with different laws, don't we? We can even work to change those laws if we want by electing different officials. And so what's the big deal with speaking evil against the law? Well, this law is God's law, not man's law. There's no flaw or shortcoming in God's law. And God's law reflects His character, and therefore it cannot be changed, which is really good news, by the way. And that means if we find ourselves at odds with God's Word, without questions, we are the ones who need to change. Humility demands we place ourselves under the Bible instead of over it. And James is specifically focusing on the way we speak about other Christians, our brothers and sisters in Christ. This doesn't mean that he's suggesting it's alright to speak evil against other people as long as they aren't Christians. Paul writes in Titus 3.2 that the believer should speak evil of no one and show perfect courtesy toward all people. But if we shouldn't speak evil of anyone, including lost people because they bear the image of God, how much more so should we not speak evil against those who are covered by Christ's blood and filled with the Holy Spirit? If there's no place for speaking evil against the law because it's His law, then neither is there place for speaking evil against His people who bear His name. So, with that being said, what follows applies to how we speak of all people, that's true, but especially of those who believe. Now, what does it mean to speak evil against one another? This covers what you might think in the obvious, gossiping, attacking, reviling, belittling, slandering, and all the like. But this also includes the way that we might speak so as to negatively color someone's perception of another person. Friends, we are all sinners, which means that even within the church, we will continue to struggle in our relationships with one another. Because living life together in a way that pleases the Lord is already hard enough, we don't want to make it any more difficult for each other. Instead, we want to help one another think highly of each other for the sake of Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that we should never tell the authorities or counselors about the evil someone has committed against us. This doesn't mean that we should never speak out against injustice and wrongdoing in our world. This doesn't mean we should totally ignore sin instead of in, in someone's life and act like everything's okay. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't tell people that if they choose sin instead of Jesus, they will go to hell. But this also doesn't mean that we are free to tell anyone about anything another person has done just so long as it's true. So then let me ask you, how do you talk to people about other people? Do you assume the worst or do you hope for the best? Do you accuse people of wrongs without all the facts? If we find ourselves saying, I don't know this for sure, but, well, then wisdom would compel us to keep our mouths shut. Do you shame those that you say you've forgiven by bringing up their past sins? Do you criticize the efforts of others in order to tear them down instead of build them up? Are you helping or hindering people from growing in their thankfulness and affection for one another? Is it praise for others or criticism of others that's more likely to be found on your lips? There will be times when love requires us to have difficult conversations, where we say hard things. But that same love must also constrain us from doing so in a sinful way. We must speak to, with, and for one another, but never against one another in the meaning here. And that means even when we are speaking about evil in someone's life, we must always and only do so from a heart of love and humility. Now, this doesn't always hold true, but generally speaking, the tone we use communicates the intention behind our words. If we're speaking from a heart of humility and love, it will be reflected not just in what we say or who we say it to, but in how we say it as well. Our words should be marked by a certain gentleness and concern. And in this way, we're addressing evil for the purpose of godliness in someone's life and not as an end in itself. The speaking against James specifically has in mind includes and concerns being judgmental. Now again, there are ways that Christians must judge those within the church. If you don't believe me, go read 1 Corinthians 5 this afternoon. But it's always according with the law and never over against the law. We must not speak authoritatively where the Bible doesn't. We must not elevate our traditions Our preferences and opinions above the Word of God. Our convictions on any number of beliefs and practices will differ from those of others. Take COVID 19, politics, and social activism as just three current examples of where we might see this play out. Insofar as our convictions don't contradict the Word of God, and we're able to uphold them in faith to the glory of God, we shouldn't pass judgment on one another. Our responsibility is to live out the law of Christ while under the law and not to add to the law while sitting over the law. Church, we shouldn't hold all of our convictions with equal firmness. Our conviction about Christ rising from the dead should be different from our conviction about how much money we should give to the cooperative program, or what ministries we should promote, or what style songs that we should sing, or what we should do with our building. Not to mention our stance on public or private or homeschooling, on whether or not we should vaccinate our children or how we should best demonstrate our patriotism, if we should at all. I could go on. Now, I'm not suggesting that those convictions are unimportant, but they aren't of first importance. And so we must not treat them as though they are. Our convictions should be informed by the Bible. And the Bible teaches us that not every area of conviction is of equal importance. What we need among the saints of the living God is the old King James word, charity. The true brother or sister shows love, the true neighbor shows mercy. None of us would say this out loud, but when we elevate ourselves over another Christian because they don't subscribe to our personal convictions that are of lesser importance than the Gospel, we are in essence claiming that we know better than God Himself. When we do that, we have made ourselves judges of God by acting like we know better than His Word. Remember, we will all soon stand before the one true judge who will measure back to us using the measure we ourselves have used. The royal law that we saw a few weeks ago from chapter 2 verses 8 through 12 compels us to love our neighbors as ourselves while we think of how we want to be treated. If none of us want someone else to speak evil about us, then we can't love our neighbor as ourselves while we're speaking evil about them. If we don't want people to wrongfully assume our motives or jump to conclusions that we aren't making, then we shouldn't unempathetically do those things to them. Christians, who are we to judge our neighbor when we are sinners in need of God's mercy? Who are we to condemn our neighbor when we deserve eternal wrath and hell and yet have received God's grace? We must not fearfully expect God's wrath, that's true, but we should tremble before his awesome power to save and to destroy. We're not God, so let's not talk like we are. Next, we see in verses 13 through 17 you're not God so don't live like it. You're not God, so don't live like it. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now, James is pointing out the pride that these merchants have shown by presumptuously planning out their future. The problem isn't the making of plans, or where they're moving, or how long they intend to stay or what they're going to do when they get there, or what they expect to accomplish. The problem is they've left God out of the equation by putting themselves in His place. Friends, we don't know what the future holds, do we? Surely we've been forced to learn this in recent days. And we know that some of what will happen in the future, because God has told us But we don't know the details of what even the next moment holds for us, let alone the rest of our lives. It's true, every day may look the same from the next from where we sent, so that we get into routine and monotony so that we can begin to presume that it will always be this way. But that can turn into us living as though we know the future, which, of course, we don't. The heart of wisdom is found in numbering our days, as the psalmist tells us. In Psalm 39, we're told that we ought to pray that the Lord would make us know our end and the measure of our days so that we might be confronted with the humbling reality of just how fleeting we truly are. When we're faced with our own mortality, it should give us perspective in our lives. And past generations, for my estimation, seem to have done a better job at this than the more recent one. The death rate is still 100%, but maybe with the advent of modern medicine and commercial farming, most of us aren't confronted with death on a scale that many once were, and many still are in this world. We need to learn how to think of death soberly without being morbid. And if we don't, we're not going to live the way God intends, and we won't prepare to face death when it comes. And it will come until Christ returns. Christians, if we're trusting in the one who has died and has now been raised and lives, we have no reason to fear death because we too will live with Him. And if you're shaken by the thought of dying, without any shame, let me encourage you to talk to someone about that fear. If that's you, I'd be honored to talk with you about maybe what's at the root of your fear of dying. As verse 15 brings out, James isn't suggesting that we shouldn't make plans, but that we should only make plans from an awareness that we are constantly dependent on the Lord. Our will must always bow to His will. How we respond when God changes our plans reveals if we're thinking about the future rightly. Now listen, if you're frustrated or flustered whenever things don't go the way you thought they would, it's not the burnt casserole. It's not the long checkout line. It's not that inconsiderate driver that's to blame. It's our hearts. When our plans fall to the ground we must cling to the hope that His plans haven't. Friends, God stands in control over all our days and everything that's in them. That's what James is explaining by saying, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Our lives, our moments, our days are all in His, plan, in His hands for His own good pleasure. And that reality ought to lead us to base our lives on Him and for Him so that we should respond with humility, joy, and thanksgiving to be blessed with the truth about who He is in serving in the pleasure of the King. Because God is sovereign over our everything, we don't need to worry about our anything. Now, of course, tacking Lord willing on to whatever plans we make doesn't necessarily mean that our hearts are humble before the Lord. But by intentionally using this phrase in our day-to-day lives, as some Christians in past generations have done by marking DV after their plans, Deo Valente, Lord willing, God willing, we're we're signaling in that moment to ourselves and to one another the truth about our place as contingent creatures before an all-powerful Creator as one author puts it. Making plans without considering the Lord is evil. Proverbs 27, verse 1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Our choices of where to live, what to do, who to marry, how to spend our lives, or if we should take that promotion, should all be decidedly impacted by the Lord. So then ask yourself, How do the decisions you make impact your relationship with the Lord? Is that something you're processing as you're forced to make decisions? If that's not your first and foremost thought, something's not right. Do you even consider how your decision will impact your life in the local church? Remember, we are interdependent members of the church. One body. So that our spirituality is impacted by the tangible, right before you, local other believers that we've joined together with. Now, related to this is the way that we assess ourselves. By God's grace, we are not now who we will one day be. God is at work within His people to make us more into the image of His Son from one degree of glory to the next said, if you find yourself thinking, I'll never be able to change. I'll never have victory over this sin. This is the way that they'll always be. Our family will always be. Our church will always be. Our nation will always be. Our world will always be. Then you have forgotten that Almighty God controls the future and is at work to change you and those you love. So, loved one, don't stop fighting. Don't stop praying. Don't stop trusting in the One who controls all things. We shouldn't presume upon the Lord for His blessings in every form on this earth. God hasn't promised us health, wealth, prosperity, offspring, comfort, security, or freedom in this life. And that means that we should thank Him for those gifts when He gives them to us, but also hold them with an open hand for Him to remove for His own good purposes in His own good timing. Friends, God owes us nothing, but in Christ He gives us everything. And that means we must put to death entitlement and deservedness Our lives must reflect that at the end of the day, we are merely stewards of what He has entrusted to us. Everything we have and everything we are is the Lord's. And we ought to live like that. And James concludes this section in verse 17 by basically saying, well, now that I've exposed your arrogance and functionally living apart from the Lord and told you what to do instead, if you fail to listen to me, well, then you're in sin. And this verse also establishes a broader principle of what's often called sins of omission. That is, sinning by not doing something. What's so challenging about this verse is that we tend, at least me, I tend to gauge my walk with the Lord based on the good things that I do and the bad things that I don't do. Now, of course, this is under the umbrella of trusting in Christ, but you understand. When we're presented with opportunities to do good and we don't follow through, James is telling us that we haven't just missed a blessing, we've sinned. We are called to care about the good things that we don't do. So that time you didn't share the gospel, or you didn't give, or you didn't confess, or you didn't pray, or you didn't encourage, or you didn't sing, or you didn't read, if you knew the right thing to do and failed to do it, you sinned against God. We must not wait for more understanding or for better conditions or for a different life stage to be obedient to the clear teaching of Scripture. We must listen to God's word in order that we might know what we ought to do, and then by His grace do what we know we should. Ignorance of God's word is not an acceptable excuse for us of all people. We must read it, study it, meditate on it, so that we will know how God would have us to live failure to pursue the Lord in this way reveals that we have put ourselves in His place. But we're not God. So let's not live like we are. Finally, we see in verses 1-6 through of chapter 5, you're not God, so don't forget about eternity. You're not God, so don't forget about eternity. Pick up in verse 1. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, the language of this final section is jarring, to say the least. I understand the rich James refers to here as unbelievers because of the content of what he says about them, which might lead you to ask, well, why would James speak to unbelievers in a letter addressed to believers? Well, by describing these unbelieving rich and the judgment that awaits them, James is warning Christians against living the same way and at the same time encouraging those who are suffering with the reminder that justice is coming. Friends, we need to hear this warning. Our culture celebrates the very things this passage mourns. We need to freely admit the draw of a materialistic lifestyle. We need to hear that if we love and serve money, it will only lead to eternal misery. And in their case, James says, what they've given up their lives to, their riches, their garments, their gold and silver, all their treasure reflects where they've laid them up. The brokenness of this world is evident in the stuff that owns it. Houses, cars, boats, trips, clothes, food, jewelry, entertainment, all of them give evidence of the fall, even if they're the finest that this world has to offer. The more we have, the more we have to maintain and fix and secure and ensure, and the more there is to go wrong that's why James says the corrosion of their riches will serve as evidence against them when they stand before God in judgment. When their nice stuff messed up, it should have signaled to them not to put their hope in riches, but they continue to do it anyways. Now, garden produce is in full swing right now, and as you know, if you have an overabundance of produce and you leave it unused for long it will be wasted due to rot. And that's what was happening as these rich hoarded their riches. Friends, the love of money is set on fire by hell itself and is a root of all kinds of evil. And it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs, First Timothy 6.10 says. At least in part, it was the love of money that led to the betrayal of Jesus Christ Himself. The great tragedy of these unbelieving rich is that they've totally disregarded the fact that they're about to stand before the Lord in judgment. They've forgotten all about eternity, they've thought only of their earthly money and not of their eternal reward. They've been stockpiling luxuries like it's peacetime when there are wounded soldiers on the battlefield in need of assistance. They've used their possessions like they're going to live forever. And because they refuse to part with their money, they have taken advantage of their workers and not paid them their due. They've cheated them. They've loved money and hated people but the Lord has taken notice. He's heard the cries of the wronged. The paper trail of their money stands as evidence of their greed. Their money hadn't reached the workers, but the workers' cries had reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And because He is just, the Lord hates injustice in every form against every person. And by refusing to give them the money they worked for, they were keeping them from being able to meet their physical needs. And that made them accountable for murder when these abused workers died in result. Friends, it should be disgusting to us when the poor are treated as though they are subhuman. The rich may be powerful in this world, They may be able to take advantage of the poor and crush them for now. But they won't be able to take on the Almighty when He comes without warning. And James uses the title Lord of hosts intentionally here to call to mind the legions of angels that stand ready to dispatch His justice when He simply says the word. This God hears the cries and sees the tears of the oppressed. Now, it's not our place to take matters into our own hands by committing injustices even if they're different than the ones committed against us. As Christians, we shouldn't approve of any injustice, but rather show compassion and empathy to those who are suffering and seek to alleviate it by righteous means. At the same time, without downplaying the significance of the wrongs faced by others, we must ultimately defer to the Lord's vengeance, to the Lord's justice, and to the Lord's timing. The fact is, no one experiences perfect justice in this life. And therefore, how we respond to injustice reveals where our hope lies. Is it in earth or is it in heaven? Now, What better words are there to describe American ideals than luxury and self-indulgence? They're used positively in the majority of our marketing, aren't they? We're told we deserve the best. We're convinced that our lives would just be better if we had a little bit more money than we currently have, regardless of how much we have. We're encouraged to look for financial loopholes, to fight tooth and nail over our inheritance. We can feel the pull to be generous with ourselves when it comes to our taxes. But all these things only serve to fatten people up at the feeding troughs of materialism just before the slaughterhouse. It's living on earth like there's no eternity. Friends, where we put our money reveals where we put our trust, and it shows where our heart is And the thing is, it is impossible to serve God in money. God demands all of our heart and all of our devotion because He loves us. There is a time and a place for living in luxury and indulgence, but it's not here and it's not now. And that's why Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now many of us know those verses, but do our lives show we truly believe them? Brothers and sisters, it is, hear me, it is possible to be rich in this present age and a faithful Christian. I have known many and I am convinced that there are many in this church. However, that doesn't undermine the gravity of texts like these. God wants us to wrestle with these texts in order that we might be fit for the kingdom. So then instead of asking how much luxury and self-indulgence we can enjoy in the here and now without crossing the line into what James is talking about, we ought to ask ourselves how we can demonstrate our faith in God and our hope in heaven best and most clearly in the way that we use our resources. As those who have been given much, materially speaking, at least in comparison With so many across the world and throughout history, we have been given a wonderful opportunity to show that nothing compares to the riches of knowing and being known by our great God. Now, if you've truly heard this passage, would you please just join me as one under conviction? I have talked like I am God. I have lived like I am God. I have taken my eye off of eternity. I have forgotten that I am not God. Have you? Well, with all of us indicted before the Lord, (laughs) what better time than now to go to the gospel? God had been forgotten by his people, but he had not forgotten them. We had put ourselves in his place because we hated him, but he put himself in our place because he loved us. Jesus left the riches of the throne to be placed in a feeding trough, to be nailed to a tree, and then laid in a borrowed tomb. And the Spirit raised him from the dead to prove that this life is not it. Eternal life has been purchased for all those who will repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ. Friends, if you will trust Him with your life, Christ's payment for your sins, including those with your speech, with your plans, with your money, they will be credited to your account. Where we have failed, He remained perfect. And that perfection is offered to you without charge if you will follow Him. If you're not a Christian, you need to know that cleaning up your speech or changing how you plan or being fair with your money Won't fix your greatest problem. You need your broken relationship with God to be mended. But the thing is, that can't happen from within you by tidying up your life here and there. No, friend. Eternal salvation can only come from outside you, from believing in the only perfect person who has ever lived, Jesus Christ. And if you will receive Him today as your only Lord and Savior, He will save you. And then He will begin His work in your life to change you. And if you'd like to talk to someone more about this, I would be glad to begin our conversation in just a moment. But let me also warn you with the principle that we saw in chapter 4, verse 17. If you know, even now, that you need to repent of your sins and believe in Jesus today, but you refuse to do it, then you can make all the excuses that you want, but the fact is, it's sin. And the Bible says, if you continue to cling to your sin, it will cling to you for all eternity as you suffer under God's wrath. But if you will cling to Christ, your sins will be covered by His blood. From believe in Jesus and He will give you eternal life. Last, Christians, as our text this morning proves, we don't just have a a past need of the Gospel. We have a present and a future need of God's grace to us through Jesus. If your heart has been convicted, don't perpetuate the problem by retreating within yourself for security. Fall on the rock who will never be moved. He will forgive you, even if it's for the thousandth time. He will receive you. And during our time for reflection in just a moment, I'd encourage you to ask the Lord to bring to mind the ways in which you need to repent this morning and commit by His Spirit to begin walking that path today. Church, praise the Lord that we are not God. And let's live our lives worshiping the only one who is. Let's pray. Father, that is our confession. We are not God. You are. We trust in your Son, the God-man Jesus Christ, for his life, his death, his resurrection, as we await ours. We pray that you would make us ready to stand, that we would be people characterized by a love for you who live our lives in light of who you are for every moment of every day, for we know that it's in your hand. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.